Good morning, Christ City. My name is Heath. Um, I'm part of the team here. Uh, many of you have not seen me for quite a while. I have been spending most of my time in East Vancouver, uh, but increasingly I have a citywide role as a chaplain on the downtown east side, working with Un- Union Gospel Mission and with Jacob's Well. It is real a joy for me to be here with you this morning. So let's open in prayer. God, uh, we ask that you would come and meet us today. We ask that you would reveal yourself in your word. We ask that uh, our hearts and our minds would be attuned for what you want to, uh, to speak to us today. So in this we pray, your name, amen. Now I have a bit of confession to make here. I have this odd fascination with weird ideas, in particular, conspiracy theories. Now hear me clearly, not that I, I believe them or I, I, I want to li- live in them, no, no, not at all, but rather part of my brain likes to understand and finds deep satisfaction in social experimentation and figuring out what other people think. My motivation in in this is that I love people and I want to know why and how people think and believe the things that they do. So my time, as you can imagine, on the downtown east side has led to some really amazing gospel conversations, redemptive conversations. But also, it's yielded some very interesting and crazy conversations. So why do I bring this up? I must share with you a snapshot of my previous week to give you an idea uh, of the the reality I live in. In doing so, I would like to introduce you to a span of three days and five reasons why the COVID vaccine is bad for us. Already, the top five reasons why the vaccine is bad for you. Number five, the vaccine will make you sterile. Yes, it is a government-sanctioned sterilization event. Number four, the vaccine will make me a biological 5G antenna. Yes, if you can believe it, I have become a 5G antenna. Number three, the vaccine will microchip me so I can be contracted and directly controlled by Bill Gates. Yes, I am now a cyborg a la Windows 95. Number two, the vaccine will alter my DNA to make me more primate. That's right. I can become Curious George if I want. And finally, the number one reason why the COVID vaccine is bad for you is because I'm no longer human, the blood of Jesus no longer can cover my sins and therefore my salvation is null and void. You heard that correctly. The number one reason why the COVID vaccine is bad for you is because the vaccine in and of itself is the Antichrist. Now, we can look at these assertions, we can laugh and we can believe them or or just kind of like stand there amazed, but, but it brings up a very important question where we find ourselves in our text this week. How do we know truth from fiction? How can we know realities from lies? How can we, in our post, post-truth, rather, our fake news era, how can we ourselves not be hoodwinked into thinking and believing and even worse, propagating lies? Just as I have had to navigate alternative COVID vaccine narratives, John, in his letter, is confronting alternative narratives to the person and the work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He has had to deal with alternative ways of being a Christian, alternative ways to have relationship with the Father without Jesus. Without Jesus. So this morning, our text here, John gives us an answer. He gives us clarity on how we can actually deal with this, and he gives us a warning. And so this morning, we're going to deal with this by answering three questions. We're looking at three things here. One is, is number, point number one, rather, is lies that deceive. Point number two is truth believed. And point number three is the results of, of the spirit received. So, point number one, lies that deceive. I'm going to just state this plainly, okay? The term antichrist here 
is fodder for our imagination, isn't it? Already our mind has gone down a thousand rabbit holes of, of pop culture references, everything from post-apocalyptic literature to, you know, horror movies such as The Exorcist to even crazy shows like, you know, Supernatural. Brandt is probably wondering, okay, where is Heath going with this? But that's okay. Be clear. Those things about the Antichrist that are at the edges of our mind, be clear. Those have nothing to do with this text this morning. Nothing to do with this text this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, and I want to read verses 18 and 19. Children, it is the last hour, and I've heard, you have heard, rather, that the Antichrist is coming. So now, many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, and they are not from us. For if they had been with us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might be plain that they are not of us. Now, clear, right? Yeah, sure. We read this and we ask, what is John possibly referring to here? Why would he bring this up at this point in this text? Now, I think John, this isn't random, I think John is thinking of a, an event, something very specific that he has in his mind. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 13, and we'll start at verse 1. Mark 13, verse 1. And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one stone upon another that will be not thrown down. Now, the disciples were marveling at the architecture, the splendor of the temple, something godlike in permeability and, and, and permanence. And Jesus emphatically states, Look, this, will, this temple will be completely destroyed. Now, I'm not sure if you've traveled anywhere. And if, yeah, not like we can go anywhere now anyway, but you can look and you can see the pyramids, you can see the Acropolis in, in, in Greece, you can see the Colosseum in Rome, and you can stand before these structures in awe at the, at the architecture, knowing that they've stood there for thousands and thousands of years, and there's a sense of permanence there. Jesus says, because this temple was like that, Jesus says that, look, this temple will actually be destroyed. This, this permanence will be destroyed. So let's continue in verse 3. And as he, Jesus, sat on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of it all? And these things are about to be accomplished. And Jesus began to say to them, see, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And then Jesus goes on for a bunch of verses to list a bunch of, you know, interesting end times things. And then we get to verse 21 here. And Jesus says this. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ. Or look, here it is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. Be on guard. I have told you all of this beforehand. So, in the year 70 AD, after a revolt, the Romans completely level the Jewish temple. All that is left today are a bunch of stones collected together what the Jews call the Wailing Wall. John, sitting on the Mount of Olives, observing this temple, he heard Jesus say these things, and in writing this letter sometime after 70 AD, he, he was alive to see the destruction of the temple. So according to Jesus... According to Jesus' own words, John here states in his letter to us, he says, be on guard, be on guard. He says, children, it is the last hour, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. 
So now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it's the last hour. Jesus is referring to Mark chapter 13. John is recalling Jesus' words of warning to be on guard. To look out for false Christs, false prophets, false people who will lead people astray. And these are whom John calls antichrist. It's for our understanding this morning that it's, this word essentially is, is, is a prefix. It's a Greek prefix, anti, and it's put in front of Christ. So essentially, in a very practical sense, the Greek, the Greek proposition anti-Christ means opposed to or against. And we even use this in English today. Anti-inflammatory, yeah, we've all taken those. Anti-fascist, anti-abortion, anti-matter. You get the idea. Despite uh, whatever fantastical thing that comes to your mind, quite literally, John Use, John's use, rather, of the term antichrist here comes and means one who is opposed to or against Jesus, a false Jesus. So that's the nature of the antichrist. Then what is the, the nature of the deception in which they spin? What alternatives are they addressing? What are they teaching that John feels compelled to write this? Turn with me to 2 John uh, verse 7. We'll, we'll, this will become clear here. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Turn back with me to verse 22 in our text this morning. Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. Put plainly, the deception that John is dealing with is rather is a Christological problem. In other words, the denial of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of the world, the Son of God, born of a virgin, crucified under Pontius Pilate, dead, buried, and on the third day rising again, ascending into heaven and being and sitting at the right hand of God interceding for us. John says that if you are teaching, if you are proclaiming any other truth, any other way, any other path to spirituality other than that faith, any other way to relationship with God other than the person and work of Jesus Christ, you are a liar, you are a deceiver, and you are what Jesus Christ calls a false Christ and what John calls the Antichrist. Mic drop. See, without Jesus, you and I cannot have a relationship with God. That absolute claim is hard for people in John's day to grab with, and it's hard for us in our day. These, these antichrists were spinning alternative narratives to reduce and lessen the impact of the absolute claim of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. John's words here are a wake-up call for us living here in 2021 in our uber-progressive community. And they're just as true as they were under Roman authority. Do not underestimate the lure of watering down the absolute claims of Jesus. Now, I have a friend of mine I have weird friends. He wanted to be a spiritual shaman. In a desperate search of spiritual awakening, he wanted to manifest in and of himself a spiritual reality from within. And he looked at these absolute claims of Jesus, and just like many before him, he went, yeah, nah, not, not for me. Can't be that. And for a year or two, um, every day we would have a dialogue. Every day he would come down into my workshop and he would propose a new spirituality theory that he was working on. And every day he left angry due to my assertions that no spirituality can be found, no true spirituality can be found outside of Jesus Christ. And before I moved away, he came to me one day and he said, Heath, Heath, we could be brothers. 
I relate to you so well, but we could be brothers except for your absolute claims about Jesus. Now, sometime later, he went to Mexico. And in a desire for enlightenment, he joined a group that claimed spiritual insight and spiritual knowledge through the, ironically, the licking of psychedelic toads. Yes, that's a thing, apparently. And he almost died there. He phoned me after this experience, and he says, Heath, I seriously need to reconsider your your assertions of Jesus. He now attends church weekly, and he's growing in his faith. He had spiritual awakening only through Jesus. This story highlights our second point well. John states that there are two things here, two safeguards, two things that we can speak to the validity and the absolute claims of Jesus Christ. Systems of checks and balances, if you will. Two safeguards that keep our faith pure, despite the countless false teachers throughout the centuries and the myriad of cultures that Jesus has been proclaimed in. They are the heard apostolic word and the anointing that has been received. Turn with me to verses 24 and 25 in our text. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The first part of the check and balance is the objective safeguard of the apostolic word, the apostolic witness, the historical reality of the incarnation, the death the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus. If you want to know more about this, check out last summer's sermon series on Christology, and and it will articulate all of these things very well. But I think it's, for us this morning, I think it's important that we go back to actually look at what this apostolic witness was. Turn with me back to right at the very beginning of our 1 John series, to 1 John 1, verses 1 through 4. Here, Here afresh the apostolic witness. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, which we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have, which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John is saying, let what has been proclaimed to you, the reality of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, resurrected Jesus, abide in you. And you will experience a a spiritual reality far greater than manifesting an inner potential or even licking toads you will experience God himself in eternity, eternal life. That's the objective promise of the apostolic word. The second safeguard might surprise you, but it's actually a subjective experience. That's hard for us word guys to hear that, but but it's a subjective experience. Turn with me to verse 20 in our text. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and all of you have knowledge. The anointing that John is referring to here is the promise of the Holy Spirit when we believe. Turn with me to John chapter 15, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will also bear witness because you have been with me 
from the beginning. See, Jesus is saying the same thing John is saying here, the apostolic witness and the spiritual witness, the Spirit's witness in our lives. Turn with me also, flip a little further to John 16, verses 13 through 15. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whoever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, and he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, and therefore I say that, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. People of Christ's city, when someone believes and receives the apostolic word, in Jesus, they receive the anointing through his spirit, the spirit of truth that leads us into all truth. The Spirit reveals the truth about Jesus. The Spirit makes, makes the apostolic witness verified in our lives. But look what he says in verse 27. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. This is the point. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true, there is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. The anointing of the Spirit testifies to the truth of the apostolic word, the absolute claims of Jesus. This is both a personal reality and a community reality. It is these things that have safeguarded and held together Christians as a community for more than 2,000 years. It is, it is part of our core values at Christ City that we are grounded in the historicity of the church, in the absolute claims of Jesus. Despite the differences that the church universal has in governance, in modes of baptism, in how we do communion, how we disciple and discipline, how we, how we sing songs and how we teach and who teaches, and every other secondary issue, despite that, the anointing of the Spirit testifies to the truth of the apostolic witness, and Jesus binds us together as a community of individuals. He binds us together as a community in fellowship with Jesus and the Father. This brings us to our last point, the ramifications of the Spirit received. Look at verse 19 with me. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But as they went out, that it might become plain that they were all are not of us. Contrast that with verses 24 and 25. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If you have heard from the beginning, if what you've heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. People of Christ City, this is life and death. John says that the ramifications of confessing Jesus is either you confess the Son and gain a relationship with the Father and have eternal life, you abide, you have fellowship with God himself, or you deny Jesus, you lose the Father, you are not of a community, and you lose everything. John puts it this way in verse 23. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. John says plainly here that if you are promoting and believing a spirituality, a relationship outside Jesus, you are deceived and not only do you not know Jesus, but you not and will not and cannot have a relationship with God the Father either. Now let's take this out of the realm of the theoretical and apply this directly to the city and with people that, that you and I both care about. 
It's one thing to be tempted by deception. And this is why John writes it to us. It's quite another thing to be hoodwinked into being the deceiver. To promote and endorse and engage in a false reality, a false pathway to God, sidestepping the absolute claims of Jesus. It's one thing to hear conspiracy theories about a vaccine. It's quite another to believe and to promote them. If you are searching this morning, if you are struggling, hear the loving call of John to believe in Jesus and abide in his word, in his love, and you will have the Father and the Son. If you're having trouble this morning, contact me. Let's walk this path together, you and I. If you feel as though you're struggling of areas of doubt and are really having a hard time, please, I would love to have a dialogue with you. You see, this, this hits real home for me. In the last couple of years, I have noticed at the extreme edges of Christianity, I've noticed this little fringe group steadily growing in number and its influence. And over the years, this group has come to identify itself as, well, with the moniker ex-evangelical. Now, they're protesting good things initially, but they're, they're trying to build a faith, they're trying to build a community and a spirituality outside the absolute confines of Jesus here. I have a few, I have a few friends who are now actively promoting themselves in this camp. And I know many more who are on that trajectory. They are who John is referring to here. People who are flirting with the idea of jettisoning the absolute claims of Jesus because their claims no longer fit our progressive society. I see this logic. I sympathize with it even. I even understand the lure to fit in. But it's completely the wrong approach, as John tells us here. As I try to understand what connects, what lures all of these people, I began to notice a common identifier. The people traveling down this path, already in the camp and going to this camp, they've all been and attributed their enlightenment to the Liturgist podcast. Now, I don't normally uh, call people out from the pulpit, but this and this group of people are exactly who John is referring to in our text. And he, quite frankly, calls them antichrist. Now, if you don't believe me, this is what they say about themselves on their about page. The liturgists was born out of a friendship between two people. They both grew up in conservative Christian churches. They both lost their faith as adults. And they both rediscovered spirituality through philosophy and mysticism. This is who John is referring to in our text this morning. He is writing to these things about us. Do not be deceived. John is giving us a way to distinguish lies from truth, deception from reality, false spirituality from true reality. The ramifications of believing in the apostolic word, being anointed by the spirit is abiding. It's fellowship with God, as I've stated earlier. We gain everything. The ramifications of building a community of faith based on human philosophy and mysticism is to be cut off, to lose everything. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. My friend thought that all this Jesus stuff was just hocus pocus. He wanted, he hungered for an experience and community without the apostolic word connected to it just like the liturgists. Some of you on this call right now be, might be in this place right now and you're, you're trying to live your best life now. You're trying to minis, minimize the constraints of the absolute claims of Jesus and you're seeking a spirituality that suits you and your lifestyle 
and one that you want to manifest for yourself. John's call to you is simple. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. It may look good now, but this path leads to death. Confess this desire and abide in Jesus. Now, others of you are mentally, you know, you hold on to and you ascribe to these absolute claims of Jesus. You say you believe, but you neuter the effects in your life and in your professional lives. You say you believe in Jesus, but, but it's a veneer of hiding unrepented and unloving lives. Functionally, your lives show that you are deceived, just like my friend. John's call to you, to all of us this morning, regardless of where we sit, is to wake up, wake up, and abide. Christ City, do not be deceived. The absolute claims of Jesus are difficult. They're difficult in our society. They're difficult in our homes. They're difficult in our workplaces. But it does not make them any less true. It does not make them any less true. But the beautiful paradox is, what my friend finally understood in, that, in his surrender to Jesus was that the absoluteness was the absoluteness of the fact that in our weakness, we gain freedom. In our weakness, we gain a spiritual reality far greater than our own or what we can derive of ourselves. In our weakness, we confess our sin and we have what John says, a relationship with the Father and of the Son. We have eternal life. Jesus deals with our, with our human struggling, our human striving, our failure, our weakness, our shame of not abiding. And he says to me, come to me, come to me, abide in me. True life, true spirituality is only found in Jesus Christ, period. The Son of God. He's the one that died a death on a cross. A cross that our doubt and our shame and our deception and our demands demands us to be there. He raised, he raised, he was raised from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead and he gives us a new life and a spirituality outside of our own that we do not deserve. Now, as we close, I leave you with a passage from one of the most brilliant books ever written. It's C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. It's a fictional dialogue, an interesting fictional dialogue between two demons on how to best trip up unsuspecting Christians. It's quite, go home and read it, it's fascinating. Unfortunately, it's hauntingly similar to our life and the path of the liturgists and of my friend. From letter 23, we read at the very end. This is, this is the demon screw tape saying this. Only today... I have found a passage in a Christian writer where he recommends his own version of Christianity on the ground that only such a faith can outlast the death of old cultures and the birth of new civilizations. You see the little rift? Believe this, not because it's true, but for some other reason. That's the game. Your affectionate uncle, Screwtape. So as we go to communion, Christ City, Boldly proclaim Jesus Christ, the righteous one, and confess to him in ways in which we fall short, because in him there is forgiveness of sins. In him we have a life. Christ City, do not be deceived. Abide in him. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are wholly insufficient to, to ward off deception on our own, on our own merit. And Lord, we humbly confess to you in ways that we've been deceived in our lives. And Lord, we ask for your spirit to reveal to us truth that we can, we can know and we can rest and we can rely on, on your work of your son, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, that we can have life anew. So Lord, we ask 
in ways in which we've been deceived, Lord, that we would be able to confess those, that you would show those to us, and that we would stand anew and fresh and clean before you today. In this we pray. Amen.